Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series over the Gospel of John. Enjoy. And what I did was include as a as a reminder, if you will, of uh, what we talked about last week with respect to this amazing miracle that Jesus did. Who remembers what the miracle is that Jesus did? I mean, he's been doing a bunch of them, but this was a big one. Remember what it was? Yeah, feeding feeding the five thousand, and that that had such an impact on the people that were involved in this for a lot of different reasons. I mean, one of which was that this was taking place uh, within proximity of the Passover. And so because it was Passover-driven, the people already had in mind this idea of, of the, the celebration of what Passover would mean. But then the fact that then Jesus comes in, and by using just a small amount of bread and fish, he's able to feed 5,000 people. The messianic implications of that was not lost on, uh, on the people. But the thing that I find real interesting is, is that it's not just the people's reaction to this, but then it's the way in which Jesus uses this as an opportunity to begin to train his disciples on taking a different perspective of life, a different perspective of faith. And the perspective that it seemed that he was really uh, trying to uh, begin to to disciple the disciples in was how are you going to look at life, particularly when an impossible situation confronts you? When an impossible situation confronts you, how are you going to view it? Are you going to look at it through the eyes of of the limitations of the human perspective, or are you going to begin to see it as an opportunity for God to be at work and the way in which God would work through abundance. And so I put that, I put that back uh, up uh, there in, on the outline because that training in starting to view uh, the way God works and the difference between the way God works and the way that we see things is going to be part now of, of what, uh, what Jesus is looking toward for the disciples looking ahead to the day when what? When Jesus physically is not going to be with them, and then they will be carrying the mantle, or they would be wearing the mantle, carrying the, the baton, if you will, of discipleship into the world, and they're going to need to be able to count on that perspective. So, uh, so I'm calling it the perspective of abundance versus scarcity. All right, let's pick it up in uh, John 6, verse 16. When evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "'It is I, do not be afraid.'" Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, remembering the scene again, all right? So at the, after the feeding of the 5,000, what was it that the people who had received this benefit of free bread and fish, right, and they had gotten as much as they wanted to eat, 
What was their reaction then in terms of Jesus? What is it that they wanted to do in that moment? They wanted to take hold of Jesus. And the Greek says they wanted to kidnap him. They wanted to seize him. So, so they, they got a really wonderful benefit of this feeding. And in their minds, this is the Messiah. But their idea of the Messiah was that he was going to be this, this uh, sort of social agency, if you will, right? He's going to provide the, all the things that we could possibly want anytime we want it. So Jesus' response to that was what? What did he do? Yeah, did he stand there and try to argue them out of this thinking? No, he left. He just withdrew, right? He withdrew when he saw that that was the mindset that they had. And so then what we're told is, is that then Jesus had the disciples uh, get in their boat and go across the, uh, the top half of the Sea of Galilee. So the top half, the northern half of the Sea of Galilee is only about three to four miles wide. It gets wider as, as you go south. So they were headed across in their boat to Capernaum, which was on the other side of the sea. And we're told that it was dark. And Jesus, he, when he withdrew, what he did, as Jesus often did, was he went up to the mountain to pray, right? And during, in his prayer time with the Father, he then had sent the disciples ahead. He himself was not with them. So we're told that they're, they're going across this, uh, this northern end of the Sea of Galilee, and the sea became rough. There was a strong wind blowing, and uh, they had rowed three or four miles, which meant they were not that far from the destination that they were going to. And they see Jesus, and what do they think? Yeah, they're frightened. Now, why... Jesus had just been with them. He had been with them all this time. It's obvious that they don't recognize him. Being sailors in that day and age, oftentimes sailors were a superstitious lot. And so you can almost get the sense that if they didn't say it's a ghost, they probably were thinking in some sense that it was a ghost. And they see him walking, uh, walking on the water. Now, it's kind of interesting that the Greek word here for walking on the sea can also mean walking on the seashore. So which, which uh, version do you want? <laughs> which one do you want? With, with the fact that it said once he got in the boat, they were immediately at the shore. Yeah. So I would think the seashore. So you prefer the seashore. No, I'm just asking which one do you want? Which one, do you want the seashore or do you want him walking on the sea? Why would he get in the boat if he was already in the seashore? We have a lot of logical people in here. All right. So I grew up with him walking on the water. So that's the way it is, okay? Let's just, <laughs> let's just clear that out, you know? And it wasn't where he knew where the rocks were, okay? That kind of that old joke, right? Okay. But actually, I was kind of surprised. I was really kind of surprised to see that, that the, uh, that the original language kind of doesn't, it kind of leaves it a little vague there. Um, and you can sort of see if they're, if they're getting near where they're going to be, and they look off into a distance, you know, when you're, 
out on the water and you look out, it, it can appear to be that he's walking on the water. But I'm just telling you, he is walking on the water. So, so that, uh, that part doesn't, uh, doesn't matter. All right. So anyway, they're frightened. All right. They're, they're scared. And so what does Jesus do to calm their fear? What's he do? What's his response? Yeah, notice he doesn't yell at them for being afraid. So I, I, I don't know where I ran across this, but somewhere in the back of my mind is that uh, this uh, sort of assertion that Jesus says about don't, to don't be afraid is a very common phrase in the Gospels. Now, somebody told me that it's like 365 places in the Gospels where it says to don't be afraid. And I didn't check that out or Google that. Maybe somebody could Google that for us. But if that's the case, that's kind of a neat, neat thing, right? That, that there's for every day of the year, there's a reference to the idea of Jesus saying don't be afraid. So what does that tell us about human nature as far as humans go? That it, we're, kind of an anxious, we're kind of an anxious creature, right? And that we need that constant reassurance and that ultimately the ultimate reassurance that we have is in the presence of Jesus himself. And again, notice he says, it is, it is I, don't be afraid. So it got me to thinking about the fact that in terms of what it means to be afraid, because if, if we as human beings are an anxious species, all right, if that's just kind of our nature is to be afraid, and you think in terms of fear as a normal human emotion, is Jesus saying, don't be human, don't, don't have fear. I mean, because when you think of it from that perspective, that would sort of suggest that there's, there's no value or no benefit in fear. And people that study uh, human nature would say, no, there's, there's value, there's benefit in fear. So let's think about it from that perspective. What, what might be one benefit or... Um, I can use the word blessing, but what might be one helpful thing or helpful aspect to fear? The adrenaline gives you strength to do more than you think you might be able to do. That's very true. In a moment of like the, the buildup of the adrenaline and all the other chemicals that are inside of us, you know, people have been known in, in a sort of panic moment to lift heavy objects, Right. So a car runs over somebody and people can like pick it up and, and, and they never could do that normally, but in that moment of fear, they could do that. Yeah. You might not get in the tornado shelter if you had no fear of the tornado. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you might think you're bulletproof where you wouldn't have a healthy respect for the power of the tornado and then you might just get sent away because you got caught up in the tornado. All right. Very good. All right. What else? What, ways in which uh, fear might serve you. Focus us back on God. Pardon? If you focus back on God, you draw closer to Him. And it's... So in that sense, uh, what fear, and it might be the situation that causes the fear, correct? That it would make us realize how helpless we are or how needy we are spiritually. Yeah, you think about major traumatic disasters in the history of the U.S., 9-11, other things like that, that immediately in the following that, churches and synagogues swelled in attendance. 
And then, you know, a year later or however long it is, whenever the moment passes, then we go back to just the same old, same old. So sometimes that is, that is the effect of it as well. How many of you ever had somebody say to you, I'm going to put the fear of God into you? <laughs> does, that, does anybody use that as a parental uh, admonition anymore? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you still do, Tom? Yeah. So, so what, well, okay, so what is meant by that? I'm going to put the fear of God into you. What's meant by that? Well, the, the fear of God is, let me, let me phrase this properly. Yeah, you better get it correct here, yeah. Yeah, but uh, putting the fear of God into someone helps them understand the consequences of their actions. Okay, yeah. And so sometimes that situation or that moment it can be a real attention getter. Right now, again, people can go over the line and become abusive, that kind of thing. But but there is that sense of uh, of right and wrong, or you know, do as I say, and that sort of thing. And if you don't, yeah. Yeah, and fear of me goes this high. Fear of God goes this high. Yeah, okay. yeah. You know, in our uh, it, those of you that went through Lutheran confirmation as uh, sixth and seventh graders, right? Yes, as I recall this memory for you, I'm sure you'll have uh, panic attacks even as we're standing here, um, but uh, you'll remember the, the, all the meanings to the commandments say what? We should fear and love God. And so one of the laments today among uh, Christian people, or maybe just Lutheran people, is that we've kind of lost the sense of the fear of God because the emphasis now so much is on the idea, I mean, if you believe in God, there's, that's not a given anymore. But this idea that following his word and, and being obedient and all those kinds of things, that we've sort of lost the sense that God would be displeased in some sense and that he might mete out consequences or punishments as often you see uh, more in the Old Testament. And so there is some sense of you know, fear as certainly awe and respect for God, but there's also this sense of, particularly when you look at the Old Testament stories, um, I think there were one or two occasions where the people of God themselves had a definite fear, right, for sure of the power of God and the wrath of God. Yeah, Keith. How about the fear of the afterlife, where you, the Holy Spirit uses the fear of the unknown to drive people to knowledge to find Christ? Yeah, or at least to seek God. And then through that, the power of the Word touches people's lives in a way to bring them to faith. But yeah, uh, again, it's kind of that idea that when you take the existence of hell out of people's uh, minds in terms of that that's a possibility of what could happen eternally, then, then what's there to be afraid of? You know, it's just leave your life and then that's it. We all go to heaven anyway. So um, I think there is some, some, uh, some sense of that. Well, one of the things that... that uh, when I look that up in terms of what he says, do not be afraid, there is a kind of a literal uh, meaning to that that doesn't show up so much in the English, but literally, I, I wrote it in there for you. It, it's do not keep on being controlled by your terror. And the word afraid there is the word phobos, which is, is a phobia. It's, it's a m way more deeper, way more extensive kind of fear than just what we would say is, oh, in that moment I was afraid. So another way of understanding it is you might initially feel afraid, but don't give in to it so that it cripples you.
That's the sense of what Jesus is saying. So he's not saying, oh, don't ever be human, like, oh, don't ever be afraid, or don't ever be happy, or don't ever be sad from an emotional perspective. He's saying that fear itself has the capacity to cripple people. And when it cripples people, what happens is most people shut down and then they're paralyzed and can't move at all. And Jesus is saying, recognize the emotional side of it, but don't give in to the power of it because the power of God is greater than the power of whatever it is that fear would tell you. And so fear is one of those things that has the capacity to shut, some, uh, shut a person down. So I got to thinking with respect to wondering what people today are anxious about. What people today are anxious about. And all the studies that they're doing now on, on, uh, on people's anxieties and the sources of that, it kind of depends on the generation in which you were, you were raised. So people, for example, that were raised in the uh, uh, World, War, uh, World War II, which, which is a, kind of a, a, a generation now that, that's, that's going to heaven, or people that were born during the Great Depression, as another example, have a different set of fears than, than people that are uh, living today and certainly uh, all ages. And so I just kind of looked up uh, one example in, uh, uh, on the internet is, for example, workplace fears. Okay, so a lot of people who are in the workplace have certain fears or certain anxieties about life. And so I just kind of listed them there for. So the builder generation is who? They are the parents of the baby boomers. So how many of you here are baby boomers? Okay, so most of us in this group are baby boomers, and the builders are the ones that came before us. So the builder generation is concerned about loss of health, um, uh, physical or mental. Uh, being alone in a nursing home is one. You know, one of the realities that I'm noticing, and I would probably notice that because I do a lot of shut-in ministry, is the number of times when someone's health situation dictates where they can live and their spouse doesn't have the same health issue and so the ha- the ha- the spouse is living in one place and the and their and their loved one is living in a different place and ha- and that was something that nobody ever foresaw that there was not not ever any way that uh, someone could see that coming uh, loneliness and then a big one is that uh, no longer being perceived as relevant. I see that a lot with, uh, well, even as I get older, I've noticed that, that I have a lot of things to say. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have to pick and choose where I can do it. Now, look what I get to do here. Isn't this awesome, right? Yeah. But you all are very nice. I have no idea if it's relevant or not, but I get to say it anyway, right? Okay. All right, baby boomers, then baby boomers uh, have some workplace fears, and, and a big one is being replaced in the workforce by somebody younger, or being replaced by some new way of doing something that all the younger ones know how to do, that the older ones are going, I don't know how to do that, right? Kind of an, a, corollary exa- a corollary example of that is how many of you have kiddos in school and you've discovered that when they come home and they don't know how to do their math homework, you don't either. <laughs> Have you discovered that? All right, so that's, that's a corollary to this same sort of thing, 
that the, that the world has changed and the education has changed. And it used to be, mom or dad, help me with my homework. And now it's like, got to go on the internet or something like that to uh, help with the math homework. A loss of professional identity, relevance. The irrelevance, again, is one of those things that as we get older, you have a lot of wisdom, you have a lot of experience, you have a lot of things that you want to teach the younger generation. And, and lo and behold, what? They don't want to hear you. Yeah. Now, the other thing is, is the plethora of information that's out there. Where do people nowadays go to get their information? Yeah, they go to the Internet. Where it used to be in the, in the old days, you know, where do you go? You go to your teacher, you go to your parent, you go to your pastor, you might go to your friends, that sort of thing. But that, the relevance of that is, uh, is, is getting lost. Gen Xers are worried in the workplace, again, about losing profitability, too much turnover among younger workers, which is kind of an interesting phenomenon that's happening. Uh, and then the distancing from family and friends due to work demands is another one. Uh, Gen Wires, that's who are referred to as millennials. Uh, their fear is that they're being ignored by the older generations, right? Or being judged as only self-centered. When, uh, when you use the word millennial... And just think about with respect to yourself. Do you mean that as a compliment? No. <laughs> now, see, who, would, who is it that would say no of us? The, the boomers are looking at the millennials and saying, boy, well, who raised you, right? <laughs> and the answer to that is what? We did, right? So look how good a job we did, right? Okay. But what's also kind of uh, uh, telling is the fear of failure. Among many millennials is the fear of failure, right? Not that anybody likes to fail, but there is a fear of that, the fear of not being smart enough, the fear of not being taken seriously, uh, the fear of never getting out of college debt actually is a real, real world fear. Yeah, Carl. There's two aspects of fear. Uh, one is flight, which we've just talked about. You'll run away from it. Yeah. And that's what we've been talking about. The other is fight. And Scripture is very strong about that. You go to God and put on His armor. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a couple of different predictable responses. One of them is, is, yeah, flight. There is actually a third one called freeze. And some of us have that. I know I do. If I get uh, startled by something, like, you know, I'm walking up the stairs at my house and and I'm just thinking about spiritual thoughts, that sort of thing, you know. And then somebody like just jumps out from a closet or something like that and scares me. Um, that's called startle response. And, and then what happens is I go into freeze. It, it's like my brain freezes. It's like my heart stops. It's like my life passes before my eyes. It's all those kinds of things. And so anyway, that's just what happens to, to me, yeah. That's called a deer in the headlight. Yes! Yes! We can't figure him out. He'll run under your car. Yes! That's right. That's right, yeah. Now, there is, uh, in certain parts of Texas where there's a, a lot of deer, that deer will stand by the side of the road until you are right upon him, and then he will jump right into the path of your car. And any number of people have gotten their cars creamed and themselves even injured. And, of course, it doesn't do the deer any good. The deer becomes uh, deer soup or something like that in that moment. So, again, it's just kind of, it's a little bit of the nature of it does seem that every generation 
has its share of anxieties. Now, one of the things that I uh, am reading now is that they're starting to look at the, the next generation, which would be uh, people basically are 16 and under. That's kind of the general, uh, the general age grouping of that. And they're saying about that generation that this is absolutely the most anxious of all of the generations, is 16, uh, 16 and under. And so it's kind of interesting. They're linking it in some way to how significant a role that technology and social media plays in the life of people under 16. And so if you think about it just from that perspective, not to say, oh, the evils of that, uh, because that's here to stay, but it's that there's an over-dependency on it in the sense that it then means that I'm going to be very focused on what other people say and what other people think, and how do I get a sense of who I am apart from what other people think of me and the way that they express that on the Internet? And so I would say that's a, a, an amazing opportunity for the rest of us to be thinking about how do we help engender that? How do you, how do you help people, younger people, build a sense of identity and certainty and security, particularly in Christ? so that it supersedes this idea that, that it would be totally dependent on if somebody didn't like me or if I didn't get enough uh, hits on my site or if I didn't have enough likes, what, what would I do? And if you are grounded in a, a strong sense of who you are, whose you are, and particularly the fact that you're God's beloved through baptism, then even though how people feel about you will sting, it's not, you're not happy if people don't like you, but, but it'll sting, but it won't crush you. It won't devastate you, okay? Somebody had their hand up. Uh, oh, yeah, Richard. I, I think a, another part of this is, is work itself. Work itself. Because when you consider the builders, yeah. they worked for one company, more or less for their career. Okay. And their identity is, what are you? I'm an aeronautical engineer. Okay, and then we come to the baby boomers, and many of them in their 50s many of us, were us. cast aside, and they had to find a second act. And some succeeded, and some did not. Yeah. And then, um, you know, the Gen Xers and the Gen Yers, we have been suffering from a uh, um, enamorment of the disruptors whether it's Uber or whatever. Yes. So the workplace itself is becoming very unstable, mm -hmm. which I would say increases the anxiety as sure. you go down. Sure. You know, the builders might say, well, they've really messed up the world, <laughs> you know. But um, I've even started reading some articles that are starting to say, eh, maybe there needs to be a, okay, you want to go in and disrupt this industry? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with the people that work in that industry? Yeah. How are you going to address that? Yeah. Yeah, there's quite a bit of fear. I, and maybe there's always had been, but it hadn't been in my world so much, pastor, counselor, et cetera, because that's still, that's still considered to be human, uh, very human-centered and human-focused. It's hard to imagine that a robot could get up and do what I do. Maybe it could, I don't know, but it's just hard to imagine that you would get that sort of human touch sort of thing, compassion, empathy, all that sort of thing from a robot. But it is kind of interesting in some, in some fields, that's a major worry. 
manufactured may be one of those where the fear is that, that I'll be someday replaced by a machine and then what happens to the human aspect of that. Although I read just, I think it was this past week maybe, that Boeing has rehired some humans because they figured out that the humans can do something better than the robots can do. So <laughs> I thought, yeah, yeah, by golly, let's, let's march on Seattle, you know, let's do that, let's celebrate that, yeah. Short article somewhere in Japan, there in some of the temples, they have robot priests. They have robot priests in Japan. Whoa, boy, I'm feeling insecure already. I'm idiot. I better get my act together here. Yeah. All right. So let's get back in. So, so it, the point is, is that every generation has this anxiety, and the tendency is, is for every generation to blame the previous generation or the or the subsequent. Uh, generation for the source of the anxiety. And what's interesting about it when we look at it from the biblical perspective is that, is that Jesus always acknowledges the existence of the anxiety and then he says, don't be afraid, it is I. So whether it works for anybody to blame everybody, at the end of the day, that's not going to give you any security. And humans are basically insecure in need of something greater than us, and guess what? We have a loving Savior who says, you can trust in me, and life is going to be okay. It doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. It doesn't mean it's going to be wonderful, but everything is going to be okay. And so what's interesting in the story is we see that, because what happens is he says, don't be afraid, it is I, and then the very next sentence says, they were glad to take him into the boat. Now, it doesn't say that he got into the boat. But because I was raised with a story that he gets into the boat, he got into the boat, okay? So he walked in the water and he got into the boat. So it kind of makes you think in terms of, okay, what might be some ways that we can deal with the terrors in the same way that they had the presence of Jesus to deal with their terrors? So a couple steps here. Step one, name it and claim it. If you're afraid, do what? Admit it. How many of you have a hard time doing that? Yeah, some of us do. Mostly all the guys raise their hands. Okay, yeah. Because to some degree, I mean, we're kind of socialized. We're kind of raised to not be admitting to anybody when we're afraid because that's seen as weak. Actually, it's stupid, right? But to, to, it is to not, to not admit it, right? Because if you don't admit it, what means is that means is you're keeping it on the inside and you're trying to work it out on the inside. And if you notice, everything that you try to do on the inside gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you can't keep it from getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Until you do what? Admit it, right? So admit it, yeah. And when, do what? Oh, yeah, until you explode all over somebody else, right? That's, that, that works so well, right? Yes. So, so to name it, yeah, Max. So there's a couple of words that put fear in every man's heart, and it's when your wife says, we need to talk. <laughs> yes. Yes, and that's why. So, so when I'm working with couples on how to, like, talk through their stuff, the, the second thing is that I'll say to the husband, at some point, invite her ask her if there's more she wants to say about that. And that fits in with the corollary of that, right? 
Yeah, that's one of the greatest sacrificial things that a husband can do ever, is to say, is there more that you want to say about that? And then actually listen, right? That's, uh, so anyway, that's a great point there. All right. So again, so talking about it does what? It, ta- it gets it out of your mind, gets it out of your heart, gets it out in, out, in, out in the open. And some people can find that that by itself works great, and, and that helps to alleviate the fear, right? If you're, a, if you're somebody that likes to write or journal or something like that, then you can also do that, and that will help process it. Step two is do what the disciples did. Visualize Jesus doing what? Walking toward you. You see it in your mind. Jesus is coming toward me in my fearful moment. And the reason for doing that is that feeling all alone or distant from God will make that terror feel even more powerful. So we, when we feel alone, and maybe we are alone physically, but if you, if you visualize Jesus walking with you or toward you, can really help that a lot. Step three, gladly invite Jesus into your boat, which is whatever the situation is, it, whatever the game plan is, whatever the treatment is that you're uh, about to undergo for a physical uh, problem that you might have. And remind yourself that no boat ever sank with Jesus in it. You'll be hard-pressed to find any story in the Bible where a boat with Jesus in it ever sank. That's kind of a neat reassurance if you think about it, all right? And then in the, in the text, as someone pointed out earlier, immediately the boat was at land, at the land to which they were going. So step four is do what is in your control to address the situation. You know, when, when the disciples saw Jesus and they were afraid... It, there's nothing in the story to suggest that they stopped rowing. In fact, if they were afraid, they probably rowed faster, right? All right? But again, it was just this sense of we still have the thing in front of us that we need to do, which is what? Is to get to move the boat to the, where we want it to go, right? And so that part was in their control. That was something they could do. Whereas uh, sometimes there are things that we can't do. So keep rowing, sailing. Keep the rudder pointed toward the goal. That makes a lot of sense. There you go in circles otherwise. And then don't leave Jesus in the boat. When they got to where they wanted to go, what happens is Jesus gets out of the boat with them, and they leave the boat, and they go about whatever it is they need to do. Make sense? So again, some little, uh, so little, little deviation, if you will, from the story, but it really speaks to this idea that we as human beings, one of the things that we share, commonality with each other, even as Christians, is that we have scary things that happen. And when scary things happen and, and anxious things happen, we certainly can uh, turn to our Lord for assistance. Okay, ready to go to the next verses? Okay, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. This group was not going to give up, right? on this dream that they had that Jesus was going to be the kind of king that they wanted to have given the fact that he had, uh, had fed so many people. And so they, you know, they are seeking Jesus. 
How many people today are seeking Jesus? What do you think? People today seeking Jesus? Yes. All right. For what purpose? For salvation. We hope. What could be some other reasons for seeking Jesus? Or at least seeking in some sense a, a, a God or a Messiah or something? Yeah, Austin. Uh, maybe peace of mind through anxiety. Okay, so maybe they are thinking, what have I got to lose? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for something that can give me certainty and, and, and uh, security in life. Very good. All right. Other reasons for seeking? Yeah, Mary Jo? Just looking for something that, uh, that's got to be more than this. Got to be more than this. Yeah. I, I live, I die. Really, there's got to be more. Yeah. Now, there's some people that have totally given themselves over to the idea that there isn't anything, right? And they're sort of resigned to that. But there probably is a good uh, percentage of people, maybe that they don't go on the internet and admit it, but secretly in their hearts, they're seeking Jesus. Now, again, what the sense we get here is that they are seeking Jesus, but not for spiritual gain. The sense of it is, is that it is a more of a material uh, purpose that they have. So let's see what happens. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus knew, didn't he? What their intent and purpose was in their seeking after him. It wasn't for spiritual gain. It was not for a spiritual relationship per se, and that's what he means when he says, not because you saw the signs. Now, it's, it's kind of confusing because didn't they all see the signs? Yeah, were, they, they, they ate of the food, right? They saw the, the miracle that Jesus did. But what they did not do was they did not attribute it to he is the, the savior of the world. What they attributed that to was, this is a fantastic miracle, and we can't wait to, to, uh, to have him as our king. And then as our king, he is going to be the one that will always provide for us whenever we want it. So you see that the, the error was in their focus. The error was not on the God who provides the good. The error was on what they felt the good ought to be. Does that relate to us in any way? So, and you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have had a particular prayer that you have been praying for years and have had in your mind what it is that you've been praying for and maybe in a very specific way and you are wondering if and when it's ever going to happen? Does that, does that resonate with anybody? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a prayer for yourself in terms of your own health or an issue that you have that you're dealing with in, in yourself. But it could be also be a prayer that you have uh, as a form of advocacy for somebody else. That you're wanting to see a certain outcome in somebody else's life, a, a certain benefit, a certain blessing, a certain change. And you know you're confident that if that change takes place, 
that that person's life will be so much better than it is now. So it's not a selfish prayer. It's not like, oh, make that person nicer so that that person's easier to live with. It isn't like that. It's, it's where you, you really genuinely are thinking about that person. Sometimes what happens is that we get so over-focused on the thing that we think God ought to do that we take our eyes off the God that does it. And it's hard to accept the idea that maybe God has a different plan than the specific thing that we happen to be praying for. And the question is, when it occurs to us or becomes very real to us that God's idea or God's sense of what he's going to do is different from what we've been praying for, what are you going to do? Are you still going to trust and believe in God? Or are you going to say, I'm done with this. What kind of God would deny me this good thing that I'm praying for? What do you think? That's a tough one. And that's what we get some sense of this here, is that there's a caution that Jesus is saying is, where do we put our faith and where do we put our trust? And, and how is that faith and trust sustained over time, even if the thing that you most want and have been praying for diligently and, and prayerfully and faithfully all these years isn't happening? Do you still trust and do you still love and do you still follow and do you still believe? Yeah, Sandy. Sometimes, you know, you're praying for something diligently and it doesn't happen and yeah. it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen. But God's got a plan yes. that you don't know anything about. So when something happens, sometimes you think, oh, that's why I didn't get mm -hmm. what I wanted before. That's right. It, but... In the moment when it doesn't happen is different from five years later when you're looking back on it, right? Have you noticed that? Is that and, and I think in, to some degree that should be and could be a blessing that older generations can give to the younger generations is a sense of perspective, right? It's, it's not to be dismissive of what somebody is dealing with in the present as if to say, oh, don't worry about it because it'll all work out and Jesus will make it happen. It's not, it's not flippant at all. I mean, we have to be kind of cautious about sometimes doing that. But there is a sense of perspective, is there not? that a long life of faith and a long life of spiritual grounding and a sense that, the, that you still have the memory that at one time in your life you were exactly where that person is now, praying for something and, and struggling with something and, and saying, I, I really want and am praying for this thing to happen, right? But you remember that and you can have some empathy for it, but at the same time, you have the perspective of many years afterwards and of many times looking back and saying exactly what Sandy just said, which is that if maybe if God had answered that prayer right then the way you wanted it, maybe that would not, in the short term, yeah, wonderful thing, but maybe in the long term, 
that would have been detrimental, at least to you, and for sure in terms of what God had all along planned, planned to do. So one of the, one of the aspects of this that, uh, that Jesus is talking about here is that he, he makes the distinction between food that perishes and food that endures to eternal life. And so it's interesting that when we think in terms of food, we immediately think in terms of what? Your stomach, right? When we think in terms of eternal life, we're thinking more in terms of soul. And so kind of a distinction here that I've drawn on the last page of our, of our outline is, is that when all you think about is your stomach, then you're not thinking much about your soul. Is this true? Okay, so like you're sitting in the late service... <laughs> and it's going a little long, and it's a non-communion Sunday, so forget about eating anything and drinking anything, okay? <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, because your stomach is starting to, like, gurgle and growl a little bit, right? How, how tough is it to remain spiritual in that moment? Have you noticed that? Yeah, exactly. All right. So, some things to think about with respect to that. Stomach issues are those issues that have to do with food that perishes. So what are some things that perish in terms of the food that perishes? Is temporal life security. Okay, how much I have and who wants to take it away? Who gets elected, hired, or impeached? How many likes you have on your site? Who has defriended you, etc.? These are all things. Now, is that to say that these things are unimportant? No, they're not important. They're important. Yeah, they matter. But at the end of the day, you can't take it with you. So it's not something that's going to endure beyond this life. And I guess the, the downside of it is, is that these things could occupy your brain so much that you're constantly thinking about these things and worried about these things and fretting about these things and talking about these things with everybody that you know, and you don't have any energy left for spiritual stuff. Because these things will suck the life out of you if you let them. So soul issues are eternal life security, the depth of your worship or devotional life, how you steward your resources, put God first, being a living witness of the fruit of the Spirit, etc. So again, it's not to pit one against the other, but it is to caution us that we don't become so enamored or focused on this life and dealing with the uses of this life that we completely devoid ourselves of what really matters, and that is what? Food that endures to eternal life. And so he says, do not work for the food that perishes. So where we're going to pick this up next week is that the people that are hearing Jesus say this are going to be thinking, well, what does it mean to work? If, you, if he says, do not work, well, then what does it mean to work for food that lasts into eternity? Okay, somebody had their hand up before we... Oh, yes, please. Sit. I just wanted to kind of echo what, what Sandra said, is that, you know, I think when you're going through that difficult time and you're praying, yeah. a lot of that is fear. Yeah. Because you're afraid if it doesn't turn out the way you think it should, mm -hmm. and you kind of for, forget God. Yes. But when you get to the other side, if you're fortunate, you realize it was God's plan, it was the right thing, and that is truly when you can be a blessing to other people going through yes. that 
difficult time because when you're in that fear space, mm -hmm. it is really hard. And sometimes what you need is you just need somebody to put their hand on your shoulder, give you a hug and say, you're going to get through this. Or like there's a sermon Pastor Coleman gave several years ago. It was kind of on this thing. It said, it won't be easy. It will be painful, but you will get through it. Yeah. And I've remembered that sermon, and I say that so many times to people when they are going that through that thing. Mm -hmm. And that little thing can be the thing that helps you get through that time. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Debbie, yes, please. Um, when you were reading that about the stomach issues, it kind of reminded me since I have two millennials. Since you have what? Two millennials. You have two millennials? Word, yeah. But that... Is kind of the way they think. And I don't think that, I think a lot of them don't think past this life. Yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. Can we have someone here who can speak for the millennial? Uh, uh, oh, uh, yeah, Philip? Yeah, I'm going to have Philip speak for the. Yeah, what do you think? I mean, is there some merit to that? Maybe. It, se it seems like it, it can be a consensus with the younger and younger generations, but, I mean, coming from my own biased perspective, here, I'll stand up. Thank you, Philip. Uh, from, from my own biased perspective, uh, uh, I, I do try and take the longer-term uh, uh, longer approach, yeah. like the eternal longer-term yeah. approach. Right. And um, earlier we were talking about, you know, people being anxious about what others think, think of you. Sure. Uh, I, I see that as I grow older and older, um, that there are only really two people in this life that I care about the perception of, of myself. Yeah. How in, in the thoughts that I care about. Sure. I don't care about uh, as as uncomfortable as it sounds. I don't care about what my wife thinks. I don't care about what my mother or father think. I don't care about what my friends think. I don't. With all due respect, Pastor Audi, I don't care what you think. <laughs> Philip. Philip, you should stop right now. <laughs> there are only two people, really, and in, 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 in ascending order, the, the, that first one would be myself. Yeah. I think of myself, and the second one is God. Yeah. And it, well, really, He's the utmost high. That right. you know, I only care about who who thinks about me. That's right. What, what they think about me. Yeah. So, um, I think I think that's just something that we do need to impose on the younger generations, mm -hmm. uh, and and to help establish some self-esteem, some confidence. Yeah in going into this life, especially the more and more connected that we are. Yeah, and that's a message that's a very powerful and positive message that we can give, which is not helped if we describe millennials in disparaging ways. If I say millennial, oh, you know, millennial, well then, you know, right away, all the millennials are going, we know what you think of us. Well, the millennials okay. are going, okay, boomer. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know they are. So, Philip, I just have, like, this one question. So, there's, there's God and yourself, and then there's all these people you listed that, that you don't really care about what they think about you, but I want to know where on that list I am. That's, you know, am I like... No, it's all the same. Oh, no, 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 that doesn't work quite well. There's, there's got to be a kind of a ranking of that, and so, you know, let's, uh, we'll talk about that. Maybe that'll be a good... Uh, a, That'll be a good filler episode, uh, Philip. Thank you, sir. That's great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I was hoping that he would say that his junior confirmation teacher would be right up there, but apparently, uh, you know, 
It's gone away. Yeah, whatever. Okay, let's see. Any other thoughts? All right, well, we're going to close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our opportunity to be together and to kind of wrestle through a little bit with the realities of life. There's a lot in life that we can be certain of, but there certainly is a lot that we uh, thought we could be certain of, and then it all of a sudden, like overnight, changes. And when it does, that kind of shakes our security to the core. Things that we thought we could count on, things that we thought would always be there for us and would be true to us and would be uh, serving our best interests, all of a sudden, like overnight, it just changes. And then we're left with, with ourselves. We're so grateful that... We're not just left with ourselves. We're left with you in our lives, and not just you in, as someone that we need to be afraid of, though fear is, is a helpful thing, but we have somebody in our life, you, who loves us and who loved us enough to send your son to be our savior, to, to uh, give up the, the love of your only son so that all of us could be forgiven and, and spend eternity with, with you. And so help us, Lord, that we would keep that in front of us. That's the, the food that, that endures to eternal life. It, sometimes we just get so caught up in all the stuff going on around us and the worries that we have that we, that we fail to devote ourselves to, to the thing that really matters, the food that endures to eternal life, and that's you. So remind us of that, dear Lord, in the coming, uh, coming days of this week. We have Thanksgiving coming up. There's a lot to be thankful for. But help us to be thankful in the sense of our relationship with you as well as the people around us and the gifts and blessings that we have in this life. So watch over us and be with us, Lord, until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.